You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio with just a little bit of politics. Listen along as we interview some of the most experienced outdoorsmen in the industry today, where you'll learn valuable tips and tricks to make you a more successful hunter, shooter and fisherman. Here's your host of the Australian Hunting Podcast, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast, Hunting, Shooting and Fishing Radio. I'm your host, Jason Selms, and this is episode 30, Hunting the Globe with hunter, shooter and journalist, Cole Allison. Thanks, everyone, and welcome back to December 2012, uh, one of the final podcasts before the end of the 2012 year. And on today's show, I'm pleased to have uh, hunter, shooter and journalist, Cole Allison, come on my show. I've been trying to get Cole on my show for about... Oh, six months, and we met up at the uh, uh, SHOT Show in Sydney, and I uh, was supposed to get Cole on before that too, but part of that was my fault, being a bit lazy and getting back to Cole. So finally, uh, in between his move to Port Macquarie, I was able to get him, you know, catch him in the middle of moving and uh, ask him some fantastic questions about his life as a hunter, shooter, and journalist in Australia. And when actually Cole sent me his bio, I was literally gobsmacked. He's been to pretty much everywhere around the world, He's done a, a lot of jobs in the hunting and shooting uh, industry, places that he's hunted across the world. I mean, it makes makes all of us look like an amateur. He's done that much. And uh, a lot of the books he's written have helped a lot of hunters. And it's just fantastic. And I'm great I was able to finally uh, lock us both down to get this interview done. It was just fantastic. So I hope you really enjoy it. And a lot of stories on this podcast. Cole's a pretty funny guy. He'll have you laughing, I'm sure, because he had me laughing, that's for sure. Also wanted to let you know, I just got back from the ducks uh, over the rice mitigation in the Riverina. I went with uh, three friends down to the Riverina and hunted ducks for a full seven days. And yeah, the weather was fantastic. It was warm, but the wind was blowing. And you know, I personally got over 200 ducks when I was down there. Uh, ducks were p- very plentiful in the area that I was in. Uh, we had to move to a few different properties to you know, f- actually find the ducks, but it was fantastic. We also hunted uh, uh, rabbits over thickets with shotguns. We also got some yabbies. Uh, oh man, what a great time. And I, I want to do this every year because I absolutely love bird shooting. And we had a great time and saved you to all my friends. Uh, I wanted to also thank the Shooters and Fishers Party. I uh, just recently uh, got duck hunting uh, on private land back in New South Wales after a 20-year ban on uh, uh, duck shooting in New South Wales. Now, a lot of people are playing it down saying, ah, oh, it's still banned, you can't hunt on private land, you need a licence. But in every state you hunt ducks, you need a licence. That's no different than New South Wales. And some of the best duck hunting to be had is actually on private land in New South Wales. Now, that just won't be on the Riverina. That'll be New South Wales wide. And they've also added the Creston Pigeon, uh, Crested Pigeon to the uh, list as well, as well as the Quail as well. So as long as your farmer has a permit, you'll be able to hunt ducks pretty much as far as I'm aware at this stage anywhere in New South Wales so that's really something to look forward to and uh, people are saying there was dirty deals but I mean there was a deal done back in uh, 95 under the car government now we've finally reversed that in New South Wales which is one of the biggest probably legislative changes probably in the last you know 20 years I'd say and so uh, fantastic work by the Shooters and Fishers Party Robert Brown Robert Borzak uh, doing their bit for their constituents in New South Wales uh, and you can also go to their website shootersandfishers.org.au please donate to their page that's really important 
uh, they need your donations and they're doing a fantastic job. And some people say, well, hang on, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to hunt in national parks and I'm not going to hunt ducks on private land. What's this got to do with me? I mean, if you're not voting for the Shooters and Fishers Party, I can tell you, if we didn't have Robert Brown and Robert Borzak in the upper house, we'd probably be looking at the most draconian gun laws in New South Wales we've probably ever had since 1995. Uh, we've already seen the ammo bill, which was not much we could do about it, not much the Shooters and Fishers Party could do about it. Without those guys, it'd be open slather against shooters in New South Wales. So, you know, just make sure you understand that. If you're voting Liberal or you're voting Labor at the next federal election, I mean, <laughs> don't listen to my show because you're a goose. I'm just I'm just being upfront and honest. You should be, if you're in New South Wales, vote for the Shooters and Fishers Party. Uh, they're going to be popping up in WA, uh, all the stuff happening in Queensland with the uh, uh, the Australian Party with the Catters, uh, certainly a lot of stuff happening. So please uh, support the Shooters and Fishers Party at the next election. I know I will be. Uh, Facebook, please jump on the Facebook page, Australian Hunting Podcast. Love to see your photos, your videos, your stories. If you've got anything to add, please jump on the Australian Hunting Podcast Facebook page and let us know. I've got my mods on there, Brad, Chloe, Ben, and Alice all doing a fantastic job. So thanks to those guys. And uh, you can also go to Twitter, AH Podcast. Uh, that's where I put off some of my Twitter feeds with news articles and everything. So please subscribe there. And if you want to email me and you want me to get someone on the show that you, know, you think is important or may help uh, other hunters and yourself, email me at AustralianHuntingPodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Any you know constructive criticisms or any ideas you might had to improve the podcast i'd love to hear those too uh, if you want to listen to the podcast you can go to my website australianhuntingpodcast.com.au or itunes is one of the main places that we do actually go to uh, rate five stars and also leave a comment if you can if you're there right now please jump on rate five stars and leave a comment but it just let, let's say you're in america right now and you haven't got access to itunes you can jump on stitcher.com download the app for the android or iphone and you can listen to it pretty much anywhere in the world as long as you've got a wi-fi connection once i upload within about an hour or so once i upload to my server uh, it's available on itunes it's available on stitcher so please do that uh, you can jump on my business website aussieferralcontrol.com .com.au. Uh, you can also share the Australian Hunting Podcast with your friends and family, Facebookers, you know, just, just, just let them know, you know, flick them an email, flick them a message and say, have you heard this podcast on hunting and shooting in Australia? Uh, I should say the best hunting and shooting and fishing show in Australia. Cheap plug, but hey, what do you do? We have a new sponsor to the show of the Australian Hunting Podcast as well, Australian Hunters International. You can visit them at ozhuntersinternational.org.au. Uh, if you're new to shooting or you're an experienced shooter and you want to join a new club, uh, where you know, you, you've got people with common interests in hunting, shooting and fishing in the outdoors, check them out at ozhuntersinternational.org.au. Uh, they can help you get your license. They can do everything in between and give you some fantastic advice on how to become a hunter uh, and shooter. Or if you're experienced, you can go to the meetings and uh, you know, just interact with like-minded people. So check them out, Australian Hunters International. I'm also looking for some guest recruiters too. So if you want to email me at australianhuntingpodcast.gmail.com, and uh, lend a hand, that's absolutely fantastic. I'd love people just to help out as much as they can. I do try and get these out quicker than one a month, but you know, I like to hunt and shoot myself and go out and enjoy the outdoors, so I try and get them out as quick as I can. But donations through the PayPal, uh, donate to the Australian Hunting Podcast. You can do that at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. If you look in the right-hand widget bar on the front page, you'll see there is a donation button, and all donations help. Uh, we're getting several donations now, so thank you to all those people that donate to the page. 
I really do appreciate it. And this podcast is, you know, for you guys that enjoy what we're actually doing and what I'm doing and trying to push the sport forward of hunting and shooting in New South Wales. So I decided to dedicate this podcast uh, this month to the Shooters and Fishers Party, namely Robert Brown and Robert Borzak for their hard work and dedication over the last year and their hard work for their constituents and themselves and the party is finally paying off. So let's rock this show. Without further ado, let's get into my interview, Hunting the Globe with hunter, shooter and journalist, Cole Allison. Righto, take three. Hi, this is Cole Allison, hunter, journalist for 42 years and a shooter. I'm talking with Jason from the Australian Hunting Podcast. All right, Cole Allison, welcome to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Pleasure to have you on my show, finally. I know we've been trying to get onto this for quite some time. Thanks, mate. I do appreciate it. No, absolutely. So I guess, you know, a lot of people from my Facebook page have said, you know, get Cole Allison on the show. So tell the listeners, I guess, for some that may not know who you are, who is Cole Allison and uh, what's his history uh, within the hunting and shooting community? Um, Cole Allison, I guess, has been around in most people's eyes uh, forever. Uh, after Nick, there's myself, and the rest of them have, you know, also uh, Johnny Come Lately's in a way. <laughs> I started riding for Sporting Shooter in 1964. So what's that? Uh, you know, it's a lot of years, 47 years. <laughs> it is. Uh, and I've changed magazines. I was the hunting editor of Australian Outdoors for years. I've been 42 years a journalist. I've been a newspaper editor. Cole Allison, Seven News. Cole Allison, News World, the television, roving reporter. I've hunted all over the world, and I've been writing columns for forever, it seems. Absolutely. So I guess, I guess tell the listeners also about your books. What prompted you, you know, to write a book, write books on hunting and shooting? I've always been a writer, mate. Uh, since I was a little boy, I wrote stories. I, I read, I read the, the all these stories of Ruark and Hemingway and. And they really inspired me to be a writer when I was a little boy. I caught up with Jack O'Connor, the great American hunting writer, when I was a little boy again. So by the time I was, uh, you know, in my teens, I was hunting deer. I was absolutely obsessed with it all. I went off to New Zealand hunting and, you know, sort of the rest is history in terms of, uh, you know, hunting. But I had to write about it. Every time I did a trip, I wrote about it. And it sort of all went from there, really. And that's pretty much all I do. It's basically uh, me and Jack's stories. Yeah, exactly. But um, I guess speaking about, you know, the countries that you've been to, I guess how many countries have you been to, you know, to hunt? And what are, what are some of your uh, memorable experiences when it went out hunting in those countries? Well, I've pretty much been all over the place, really. I've been to Mongolia, which I think is probably the most interesting place I've ever been. It's just such a, uh, a lunar landscape and, you know, not, not many real roads in those sort of places and hunting interesting animals in the high Altai mountains. Argali sheep and and uh, and wapiti and uh, and deer and all sorts of interesting critters. But I shot a big a couple of big ibex over there. That was pretty interesting. Africa, I've been to half a dozen times. North America, as many times. They're, you know, they're all they're all interesting places for all different reasons. What made you want to actually travel overseas? I mean, in search of you know new hunting opportunities. Was it you know species that aren't available in Australia, or just a love of hunting? Uh, the love of hunting took me to New Zealand when I was a kid, uh, and I became a professional deer shooter. I was shooting white-tailed deer for the, uh, for the German meat market on a little island called Stewart Island. I did a year of that, and then while I was in New Zealand, I hunted every species. You know, I was after a trophy of every animal in New Zealand, 
from there you go on, you hunted every animal, you know, elsewhere. Before that I'd been in a, in a, when I when I came back, I went around Australia. I ended up as a buffalo shooter in the Northern Territory with the late Jim McCorry, hunting crocodiles and buffalo for the meat market. So a, a little bit of that, you know, a little bit of the commercial side, a job side of it, and uh, and and actually the hunting experience. Yeah, speaking of that, I mean, is there, do you think there's a desertion between, you know, doing it, as a business or not just for love of hunting does it turn into you know just work after a while or or it's always Absolutely. just fun i used to sometimes i'd be lying out in a, in a, on, a, on some uh, ferns in the snow freezing to bloody death at night in new zealand thinking why am i here why am i doing this i'm 19 <laughs> years of age 20 years of age and then i'd say to myself hey cole forget that mate 40 years from now, when you're an old granddad, you look back on those years with, with pleasure and, you know, you'll gloss over all the bad times. Uh, and that's how it goes. It's yeah, true. I was going to say, I thought you'd be, you'd be out chasing the late, chasing the uh, ladies at, at, at that age. Well, yeah, I left home early, mate. <laughs> <laughs> to go hunting because I was obsessed with it. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I, I guess what's it like, you know, being in, you know, journalism? I mean, obviously, especially... You know, uh, towards, you know, you said you've, for the magazines, you've written for hunting and shooting magazines. And I guess has life, you know, in the hunting and shooting community changed over the years, obviously, since you were a boy? I mean, obviously, we can talk about laws and politics, but ha- how has it changed as you've seen well, it? Well, look, over when the I years? was a kid, I used to go to the Borkhamville Rifle Range. I lived at Connells Point, Kyle Bay on Sydney southern, uh, southern Waters. And I used to catch a train and a bus and walk up to Borkham Hills, and which I now live a mile from the, up the old Borkham Hills shooting range, Rifle Range Road, where I came to as a kid. But I could do all that with a rifle on my back, ammo in my pocket. I could have a, a shooting vest on. I could, I could walk around, you know. It was a free country where no one gave a damn if you were on a bus with a rifle. Well, look at today. If you did that today, you'd have the, the SWAT squad on you before you got out of out of hospital. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you're right. But do you think, like, is it obviously? I, I might be it's changed for the for the worse. But do you, do you think it's ever going to go back to some of the other ways it used to be on you know hunting, sort of you know being accepted? I honestly, uh, I can't, I can't see it in the uh, in the general public sense. But I mean, if you, I'm I'm living up in the Port Macquarie area soon, and uh, up there, you know, you. The local colours are doing a service for people, and you know, shooting isn't a bad name. It's more of a bad name, I think, in the city. But the Borzacs of the world and all the rest of them are doing everything they can to, uh, you know, to promote the image of shooters, and I think it's a good thing. I don't think it will go back to how it was. I think there is a more general acceptance amongst the public. Uh, but those who hate us, hate us, mate. There's no equivocation about it. That's right. You can't you can't change those people's minds. Like, like the trying to talk to a greenie, mate. You know you can only go so far, and at the end they just go to default. They'll hear your argument, <laughs> flick back, and that's it. You must have got further than me then. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, not very often, I'm afraid. Yeah. I don't even bother trying anymore. No, I think I think you're exactly right. But ha- I mean, ha- how do you think? I mean, uh, hunter education helps hunters become you know better hunters. Well, it stops the idiots. Well, it doesn't stop the idiots, actually, but it stops anyone being an idiot. If you're educated, you think about things, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I hunt with Borzak and other mates, you know, we check our rifles, we make sure, you know, you just do simple checks. Um, you know, and it's it's a consequence of all that that you, you become a better hunter, I think. Yeah. And a better shooter and a more generally acceptable person. Yeah, do you think, obviously, obviously, safety, speaking of that, obviously safety is important to learn for the new and upcoming shooters? Mate, safety is the number one concern for anybody, I think, in anything. 
I mean, I got a rifle back from a, a custom rifle back from a from a, a, a custom gunsmith in Melbourne 20, 30 years ago, and I went out to the rifle range to fire, and I put a round in, and I, I just slammed the bolt, and she went off. Luckily, all my training warned me never to point a rifle anywhere near anyone, so I went off down range. Uh, so accidents can happen even when it's not your fault. But generally speaking, I don't believe in accidents with rifles. You know, it's just it's stupidity. And just common sense, isn't it? And common sense. Yeah, well, it's common sense in so many things, isn't it? That's right. No, you're exactly right. Um, another good question I've got here for you, I guess we're talking about, you know, we spoke about national parks before and the Shooters and Fishers Party did a good job on introducing some national park hunting, you know, to get more access to land for hunters. Do you think this will benefit hunters and conservation in the community? Well, absolutely, mate. I mean, it, you know, I don't think people realise, but problem animals are problem animals. I mean, up where I'm living in Port Macquarie, uh, there's, there's a local culling team. I've just been invited onto it, so uh, and I was around when when it was first mooted. People have almost been killed by bloody deer running across the road. You know, I remember there's one woman about 100 yards from my place along Ocean Road. She took off, it's 100, and a, and a rooster stag ran across the road and she flipped, she ran, over the, she ran over the road, rolled over into the swamp and nearly died. I mean... He, there are benefits like that from, uh, you know, community community council shooting program. I remember I was speaking to John Tingle too, and he uh, he was telling me when I was he was on my show before. He was telling me a number of those, you know, deer up in Port Macquarie really started to get very bad up there. Well, uh, they have been, but I mean, what, what's bad, mate? I mean, I've, I've, I had a stag walk down the road the other day past my place and wiped the ticks off his balls on the letterbox. Now. That's got to be a good thing, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you, you don't have to travel far, do you? Uh, no, but you know I can't <laughs> legally shoot them on the, on the front of a street. Quick, into take a him lake, into the forest, you know. quick. You know, take him into the legal areas, isn't it? <laughs> oh no, exactly. there are plenty of legal areas now, thanks to you know the game council and uh, and, and the shooters party. That's right. And I had this conversation with someone the other day. They said, well, "Why on earth, especially with some of the laws that are coming out?" You know, of late, and you know, just a couple of days ago, I read the you know the police tried to swindle some laws past the uh, you know the, the new firearms committee of New South Wales, and it was only that you know some good people actually read the fine print of that you know 98 to 100 pages that they actually picked up some quite disturbing uh, things the police and the government were trying to implement and trying to swift under our noses. What do they say? The details always in the fine print. Exactly, and the, and, the, and people had a, had a good point. Some of the people that were on the committee, obviously, are the ones that found it. I mean, good, good on them are fantastic. But I mean, why are you on the why are some people on the committee if they're not reading, you know, things that are going to affect all shooters come in the future if you're on the committee? But I guess that's well, mate. Why do, why do people join councils and then uh, you know they, they haven't they haven't read read all the minutes to the meetings that's coming up? I mean, that's pretty common. The argument, of course, would be they haven't got time. But, you know, if you haven't got time, don't be there. Oh, no, exactly. True. But I guess a good question. I've got a question for you is, you know, when people, let's say they want to go out and they want to hunt a certain species uh, and they want to, is it important to study, you know, that game to try and make that hunt that you're going to go on be successful? It's the most important thing you'll ever learn is to truly understand the animal you're hunting, understand his environment and how he fits into it. It's the only way you can ever beat an animal is if you know about him, and then you've got to really know about him a lot. I mean, I reckon uh, it's only in recent years, uh, with with lots of trips, that we've we've learnt how to hunt samba properly. Even though I've been hunting them on and off for 40 years, but you know, samba are a long way from here, here in Sydney where I am at the moment. Uh, so it's not like you can rush down there every weekend. That's one of the reasons people in 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 uh, Victoria have a, an obviously uh, you know better opportunity because they can study the animals and they can go back and forth and study them. 
And over here, it's where I am, it's more like Rooster and Fallow. You get to know them pretty well. And they all have their idiosyncratic ways, mate. Yeah, exactly. But uh, what qualities, let's say a guy who wants to go out in the bush, he wants to start, you know, he wants to learn about the game that he's hunting. But what qualities, you know, what do you think would make, you know, I mean, a, a good successful hunter? Patience, number one. Number one thing is patience. <laughs> True. You must be patient. You can't rush anything. And we've all done it. I mean, you know, I don't know how many years I spent roaring around the bush. You know, I hard, we hardly walk, hardly walk at all now. I walk around. I find where the animals are rutting, where they're breeding, where they're doing this and doing that, where they're sleeping, where, where they're feeding. And then I work out a strategy to where I'm going to sit and I'll walk as minimally as I can. Yeah, speaking about that, it's a good point you actually bring up about, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of the Americans use a lot of, you know, tree stands, uh, you know, during their they're hunting. fantastic things, don't knock them. Yeah, no, no, I'm not exactly. But do you, do you find where that's an important thing? Whereas a lot of people will, you know, not know about the game they're hunting or, you know, they really have to work hard, which is, which is you know, part, part of hunting, having to work hard to get their game. But do you think it's more experience of having that knowledge to find out where those deer are or, or where you think they might be during that period? Or, yeah, it's better, or it's better to cover as much ground as possible to give yourself much more of a chance? Especially I think you have to do land. a bit of both. Look, you really have got to be forearmed, forewarned, you know, that sort of thing. You've got, to, you've got to really study them. You've got to know where they are. You've got to have a pretty good idea of where they're living. And then you've got to walk over the ground to, to, to get to know the pattern. You know, you, you really have to cover the ground, but you don't have to rush around like a blue-ass light. You can uh, you just tootle around and you find where things are happening. You, know? you find where they're sleeping, where they're doing, where they're feeding, as I said, all the things I mentioned a minute ago. And then you just patiently work the ground. And you won't do any good the first time. The first time is just exploratory. You're just checking it out. I think it's the hardest thing to explain to anyone, too, that when you do an overseas trip, the first trip is just an exploratory trip. You know, most people save up all their lives to do it and then to realise that this is just, this is just a, you know, a, a quickie, a way of finding out how it all works. Exactly. So I guess what's, what's Coe Allison's favourite uh, game to hunt? I mean, obviously it seems like you love deer. Is that your, your favourite game to hunt yeah, and why? Deer and sheep. I can't afford to hunt as many sheep as I'd like to. And I like hunting bite, what I call bite-back game, you know. I've just hunted lion in Africa, and it was the most thrilling trip of all. But animals that can actually, you know, frighten you, like elephants and lions and leopards, all of which I've hunted, buffalo, cape buffalo, you know, all those scary games, uh, yeah, pretty interesting to hunt because it adds a new dimension to the, to the thrill of it all, doesn't it? Does that, yeah, speak, I guess, yeah, speaking of that, what, what's it like? I mean, I guess you'd have to experience it yourself, but when you get animals like that, you said, like elephants or, or you know, lions, where it can be, you know, uh, you know, if you, something happens or the wrong thing happens, you can be, you know, severely hurt. What's it like when you add that dimension? Uh, you get a bit, you get quite tense in the guts. I remember when I hunted lions, it was only a couple of months ago, a month ago now. Uh, the, the, one of the woman, the, the woman of the outfitters, uh, the wife of the outfitter, said to me, "Are you scared?" And I said, "No, I'm not scared." I said, "But I'm, I'm certainly, uh, I'm certainly hardwired." <laughs> and she said, "Well, don't be scared. That's good. That's a good thing. But, but don't take it, uh, you know, don't take it easily either. These are very scary animals. These will kill you in a blink." And it's all true. And that, that adds, you know, that really adds to the adrenaline charge. So the night before I hunted lion, I was, you know, I was a bit upset in the guts and, you know, all that sort of thing. The usual sort of things you get, like if you've got to give a long speech somewhere, you know, and you're not really prepared and you're sort of winging it. 
Wing it? You <laughs> yeah. think? All right, all right, eh? yeah, okay. <laughs> Be prepared, I guess, is the answer. So are you, are you normally a, a chap that brings home your, your mounts and stuff like that and get them taxidermied and mounted? Yeah, I've done I've done a bit of everything, mate. I, when I was a kid, I worked with a taxidermist in New Zealand, and he's taught me how to do it all. I, was, I spent years doing taxidermy. I helped pioneer a few techniques over here. I dropped the backing board off uh, the shields off heads and started to mount them more lifelike. That was 40 years ago. I didn't do anything for 20 years, paid everybody to do it. But in the last you know, five or six years, I've gone back to doing it all myself. I actually get a big charge out of it. I like it. Yeah. And if it's wrong, I've got no one to blame it myself. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at one of those websites the other day where you know, taxidermy gone wrong, and I'm like, yeah, I saw oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> who would have paid for some of this stuff? Yeah. <laughs> pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> some of it was pretty funny. I shouldn't laugh, but I did. Yeah, um, well, you don't see a lot of that, thank God. <laughs> it was, yeah, like you know, back, backyard taxidermists. Yeah, back know. in the old days, we used to make our own forms. I used to photograph the animal on its side. You'd blow it up on a wall, trace out the shape on the wall. You'd put a put a, a marine fly board cut to that shape, and then you'd whack on the sides, slab foam, and then shave off everything that didn't look like the deer. <laughs> really? And basically, tan the skin, pull it on, and you know I've got mounts here 50 years old, and they still look pretty good. But yeah. today, that's easy. You just buy a form, you just measure everything up, and you just get a form, and it's all there, done for you. Every muscle, every everything. Yeah, exactly. So what I'm saying is there aren't as many mistakes as you saw on that website. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, they wouldn't you, want to be. No, that's right. Do you do you enjoy? You know, like I said, you're talking about there's a lot of deer in your area, and you're a bit of a deer hunter when you were younger as well. Even now, do you enjoy? You know, eating like game meats, you know, rabbits, hares, deer. Yeah, I love it, mate. It's it's a bit of an acquired taste. My wife doesn't like it, and uh, and I think it was my fault because I used to shoot. Only meat, the only meat I ever shot was the stags I shot, and because I was shooting old rubbing stags, they were pretty ordinary. Uh, so you know, in the end, my wife wouldn't shoot them. So these days, I shoot just as many uh, just as many does as I would trophies. In fact, I shoot more because they're the best eaters yeah. or young stags. You know, would that be after like your big game you've hunted? Is that is that your main type? I mean, obviously that's what you're doing up there in Port Macquarie. Is that your main type of? Hunting deer, that's what, that's what you, that's, you enjoy that a lot? I'm basically a trophy hunter. I'm always looking for a big stag. Uh, and what, when, the, when, the, when the season's on, you know, the hunting season, I'm looking for the big one. On the way home, we're just likely to shoot a, a, meat, a meter, you know, a doe. And I like cooking, so, uh, you know, I've got millions, millions of, uh, you know, different ways I like to cook. Yeah, I was going to say, when, when you were going through all your, you know, all your hunting and all that, you must have had a nice uh, wife that put up with, you know, being away and doing all that sort of stuff. Mate, I'm, I married a country girl, so, you know, a farmer's wife, a daughter, farmer's wife, a farmer's <laughs> daughter, so, uh, you know, they're a little more understanding of all this, I think, than, and a bit more tolerant than city people. <laughs> I think you're right. But, but you're right, the tolerance stretches when I was away and she wasn't, but she comes on the, on, on trips with me. She <laughs> came to Namibia last year and had a ball, but I didn't take it away from I'm glad I didn't, because it was pretty pretty hairy sort of a trip in many ways. Mm, interesting stuff. You ended up, as you were saying before, you ended up shooting uh, professionally for white-tailed deer. For the, is it a, was a German export market or company. Can yep. you tell us about that on the Stewart Island? What yeah, you know, what was that like? And then, you know, you did it for 12 months. And what, well, what, I was a kid, mate. And what we used to do, what we did, I, I, I teamed up with a German bloke, a fellow named Alf Kirsten, who was a who was a pretty keen hunter like I was. Um, and I'd done a couple of trophy hunts on the island before then. I'd shot a couple of reasonable white-tailed stags, bucks, 
I saw the opportunity, and no one else was doing it at the time. And I'd had some pretty good runs. I had a house in Queenstown for three years when I lived in New Zealand. I rented it out, and when I wasn't there, I'd, I'd sublet it to other people. And I shot a lot of deer in the local valleys from the meat market while I was looking for big stags. So I thought, okay, I can do this. So I got got in touch with a lot of the local fishermen and found two or three who were amenable, quite happy to uh, to drop us off. And what we used to do, they'd, we'd provision up and then we'd load up on one of the fishing boats and they'd drop us off at the various coves, you know, up and around the island. And we'd set up a camp and we'd hunt. Uh, but you wouldn't be hunting very far because the first, after a dozen shots, whitetails just clear out, you know, they weren't, they didn't hang around. So then you, we worked it out that you just, you go in, shoot for three or four days and then clear out. But it didn't always work like that. I once uh, we once starved for 17 days. I nearly died on that trip when a, a huge storm blew up, you know, and and the fishing boat couldn't come across the uh, from the mainland to pick us up. So all our meat had rotted, and uh, you know the water was there wasn't much fresh water where we were, and we were in a punga hut, you know, one of those tree fern huts, and we just got weak, and we we got a, we got some dysentery trying to eat some cooked meat, so that didn't help us. Uh, in the end, we just lay in our bloodies in my tent. I had a pup tent, and that was we 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 slept in there and cooked in the panga hut. I just lay in there, and and I, I just can't believe it. You know, we got eaten alive by mosquitoes. At one stage, I looked at my arm; it was just black with mozzies. So they sapped the energy out of us. And generally, we were pretty run down. We'd been knocking ourselves about carrying carcasses around for for months. So we just sort of lay there and accepted that we were either going to die or get rescued. We didn't have the energy to climb up on the hill and, and set a bush a fire going. And, and all this time, this bloody howling gale, 80 knot wind, just blew and blew and blew. Fovo Straits, one of the roughest straits in the world. And in the end, the boat came and, you know, we had the big blast out in the ocean and we sort of crawled out and sort of crawled down to the beach, got on the, got on the boat. And all we'd been thinking about between us, I think, for the last two weeks was Chocolate, <laughs> chocolate fudge, you know, all that sort of hot biscuits <laughs> and stuff like that. And we stoked all that stuff down, burlied the fishes immediately. And then two days later, we were shooting wild cattle on a place called Lee Bay. So no lasting effect, mate, but uh, effect on the psyche, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I couldn't imagine what. Did you, did you honestly think at one stage, like, you know, geez, I might, I might die here? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I thought it was all over, over. But you know, I've had a lot of experiences like that over the years. So uh, <laughs> you know, you, uh, you, you get a bit, uh, a bit sanguine about it all in the end. I think. Yeah, I know. When I was reading your bio, my my head was spinning about you know just reading all the stuff you'd done. I think, man, this guy's done it all. Like I'm jealous. You know, I mean, I knew you'd done a lot of stuff, but when I got your your, your bio you sent me, I was just like. Oh, you've, you know, you certainly, you certainly, you know, you won't. Uh, when you get a bit older, you won't regret things. I don't think. No, I don't think so either. You know, I've had a lot of people try to get me to write a general biography, but you know, there's a lot of things in your life you don't want people to know about, isn't there? <laughs> so I've never done it. But uh, <laughs> what, yeah. that'll be half the book, will it? Or? <laughs> well, it probably would be. Yeah, I mean, I met Saddam Hussein once. He threatened me with a pistol. You know, the dictator of Iraq that the Yanks yeah, hanged. No, no, you've got to tell me. You've got to tell us his story. You have to tell us. Yeah, his story. actually, it's not a bad story. I, I was the only guy sucker in the newsroom one Sunday when the Kemlani affair blew up in '72. Gough Whitlam had been accused of uh, trying to borrow two and a half million dollars from the Arabs, the Arabs in this case being Iraqis. And the and the kingpin in the story was a bloke named Kemlani. 
And uh, I was the only guy in the in the newsroom. I was column eight at the time, the Herald's uh, flagship columnist. And uh, I was the only one who happened to have his passport with him. Don't ask me why, but anyway, I had it. So next thing I know, I'm on a, on a bloody ship to the Middle East, on a plane to the Middle East, where I arrived and there was snow on the Elbers Mountains, and I was in a t-shirt and a you know sort of a pair of jeans. Anyway, I ended up uh, I ended up walking into the 16th breakdown of a ceasefire in 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 Beirut when the plane landed they were shelling the bloody airport mortar bombs flying everywhere and I thought oh this is interesting <laughs> and I get to go to the Australian embassy on what was called used to be called the Paris of the Pacific Beirut and the whole joint was shot up the Australian embassy was on fire uh, smoke pouring everywhere there were people shooting all over the place I ended up in a room and, and I opened the door and slipped on shells. There'd been some bloke shoot, shooting all sorts of, you know, shells off the off the off the balcony, and the room was full of casings. Uh, a couple of days later, I'm in a in a in a in a taxi, uh, going down a street. I forget. I was following up somebody, some some uh, some line to try and find this Kemlani guy. Going down a back street, and suddenly all the shutters on the windows all rattled closed, and the taxi driver said, "Oh fuck." Uh, and just as he said that, he's trying to find a way out of this alley. A tank came around from 200 yards down the road. We're in a back alley, right? 200 yards down the road, a tank comes, and then suddenly behind us is another one, and the tank duel starts with us in the middle. So oh, I, we, no way. I had a, we had one shell go straight between us. Straight through between between the driver and I, and they and the uh, there was a phalangist tank that was the Syrians. Behind us, they started opening up, and it was about 13 or 14 people run in front of us, and they all got bloody nailed. Just then, we turned the corner and got out of the place. So that was pretty hairy. Anyway, eventually, eventually, via a long circuitous route through the Middle East, I ended up in Iraq. I was the first, first Brit or British person to get in there since the Brits got shut out, thrown out in the 50s. All the Iraqis wanted to know was how the hell I got into the joint. Anyway, it's a long story. And I sat for four or five days waiting to talk to someone to ask them about, did they offer Scott Whitlam all this money, right? doesn't seem a lot of money today, but it was a lot of money then. It was a pol- was political. Pol- so political, it just wasn't funny. The country was polarised by Whitlam. And uh, anyway, eventually after four days, we're twiddling the thumbs, thinking, God, you know, I had 64 questions to ask this bloke. Saddam Hussein, it turns out his name was. Anyway, I get called into this office and the information minister introduced himself, Saddam Hussein. That's what he was then, the information minister, which meant he was he was a spy master and the bloke who ran the Secret Service. And uh, the first question I asked him was, uh, you know, did you uh, did you offer Gough Whitlam two and a half million dollars to uh, tide him over during their problems? And uh, he didn't say anything. He just pulled out this pearl-handled pistol, flicked it around on his... Uh, in front of me on the desk, by which stage I was just about grabbing myself. <laughs> and uh, and then he just put it in his pocket, got up and said, no comment, and walked out the door. That was it. I never got to answer the other, ask him the other 63 questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, yeah. well, I never did find Ken Lani. No one did. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah. Oh, mate, you've had some stories. I mean, a bloody tank shell going through the middle of a uh, taxi. Oh, I just... Jeez, mate. Yeah, I had a lot happen that week. Or the two weeks. <laughs> That's enough for a lifetime. Yeah, it was a bit. So you, you were saying... And I didn't know who Saddam Hussein was at the time. He's just another 
bloody Arab flunky, you know, but uh, it turned out, of course, that he was a, he was a big man. Ended up throwing out uh, what, the Ba'athist uh, government uh, leader in a coup and uh, took over the joint, and the rest, of course, is history. That's right. You, you wrote, you tell me you wrote articles for Sporting Shooter. How, how long were you doing that for? Do you still do something you do today, or...? Uh, yeah, I did yesterday. I wrote a I wrote a piece yesterday about uh, about Africa. Um, yeah, I, I started in '64 or '5. I can't remember which was was a was a story called Rifles for New Zealand Game. You know, I was 20 years old. I knew everything by then. <laughs> uh, and you know, the funny thing about it is, I look back on the calibers that I mentioned. You know, two four three, three oh eight, thirty oh six, seven mil Magnum. And pretty much today, apart from minor variations, given that the, you know there are new calibres around, it'll be still what I would recommend anyone use. So nothing's changed much in nearly 50 years. Yeah. So Bobby does get to my next question. I mean, are you uh, like what, what types of you know shooting? I mean, obviously hunting. What types of shooting are you? Are you a shotgun guy, pistol guy? You love your rifles, and what's one of Co. Allison's favourite uh, firearms, and what sort of calibres? Well, mate, I'm a custom rifle man. I'm a, it's, it's a family thing. Uh, you know, my relatives go back to Scotland. They were gunmakers, and uh, you know, made guns for you know all sorts of people. But and I guess, in a way, I've carried on the tradition. I don't physically do it because I don't have the talent, but I've organised other people to do it, and I've been very lucky to find the, pretty much the best artisans in Australia, although a lot of them aren't here anymore. They're, over, they're overseas. But custom guns are my thing. Mauser's are my favourite rifle, but I'm a shotgunner too. I love shotguns. Yeah, like uh, me, yeah. Just about all, and I love wood. Wood's my big, big passion in life, in, in the gun thing. I love... Turkish Circassian walnut, you know, fine grain wood with ma- with magic swirls. If anything, I'm a bit too fancy with wood. Although Damien Connolly, one of the great all-rounders in in the gum trade, said to me once, "There can be no fancy wood can't be too fancy," and I'm inclined to agree with him. So, but what what, what sort of you do with shotguns? You're more of a well, you you just hunt with them. Yeah, I'm, them, I'm or a bit of a classicist, mate. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. A, I'm, I'm, I go target. I go uh, clay clay and trap and all the rest of it but it's not really my bag i'm i'm pretty much just a hunter yeah so uh, we hunt ducks and quail and you know whatever i can legally you know yeah exactly and you're speaking you moved up north what was the i mean just the you know, i haven't quite moved i'm in and out mate i'll be yeah. up there but two weeks from now but i'm nearly there is it more for you know like you just that's it you know retirement and moving on or better yeah it is i bought a place up in port you know 12 years ago and we've rented it out over the years but it was always going to be my retirement place it's right on the lake yep you know and the lake goes onto the ocean, and it's 18 miles of beach from uh, Lake Cateye, from Bonnie Hills, Lake Cateye to Port Macquarie. It's just, you know, the Pacific, and it's all there. And there's really not many people there. This was an old, this was a, a village, Lake Cateye is where I am. It's, uh, it's, it's the locals call it Cateye. It's Cathy, but, you know, there's another Cathy, so they differentiate it by being Cateye. And, uh, you know, it's, um, for me, for me to uh, hunt here in Sydney, it's an effort. You know, I'm nowhere near anywhere I can hunt. Uh, so, you know, up there, um, you know, I mean, the hunting's right there. It is literally there. I, I can hunt and fish every day in my life, or what's left of it, in Port Macquarie. You know, well, I can't do that in Sydney, I mean, without a hell of a lot of effort. Yeah, no, you're right. You're exactly right. But uh, I was going, you know, I was going through your bio too. I remember you said uh, in your bio you were charged by a bear in British Columbia, got caught in a blizzard, and you had to sleep in a deer carcass. How on earth did you get through that one? Uh, that was in New Zealand with the deer carcass. Uh, okay, sorry, yeah. I had a, no, that's all right. Uh, I got charged by a bear in British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, but the deer carcass was in New Zealand when I was a when I was a meat shooter, 
I uh, I'd, I'd climbed up pretty high, and and uh, in the same trip I got bluffed one night, and I ended up spending the night standing up on a narrow ledge. I was too shit scared to sort of try and get back again. <laughs> yeah. I pushed my luck too late, and pretty much the same thing happened with the deer. I shot this deer late at night, fairly high up on the tops, way above the snow line, and it just got dark and it started to snow, and there was just no way I was going to find my way down. Uh, so I, you know, I sort of gutted the animal and sort of you know, opened it up and sort of crawled in. But I bloody near froze in the damn carcass anyway, so it didn't do him any good. I was up most of the night jumping up and down trying to keep warm. The new, uh, the, uh, the Canadian bear was a, was a trip I did in 77. I, it was probably the longest trip that anyone had done. They told me since the 1930s. I was nearly six weeks hunting all sorts. I hunted 21 species of 14... Sorry, 21 animals of 14 species in... Uh, in um, you know, in, in Alaska, British Columbia, Mexico, all over all over America, and the main thing was was sheep and, and elk, but I also desperately wanted a big grizzly bear. So uh, I shot a monster moose this day with an Indian. We were on a pack horse, just he and I. We were on pack horses right out in the middle of nowhere, all on the Yukon on, on the Yukon Northwest uh, Territory border, and. Uh, we had this massive moose and he kept slipping off and off the horses and so on. And we're coming, we came, just on dark, we came through a forest onto a shingle bar with a shimmering river, you know. And I heard a growl, a roar, a splash and a groan. And I thought, what the hell was that? And the next thing, the horses up in the air and out up from the, the river was a, came a grizzly bear. And what he'd done, he'd just ambushed, we figured this out later, but he just ambushed a cow moose and he just jumped on her, bit her in the neck and just wrapped his arms around her and just literally tore tore her chest open and killed a stone cold dead. And then we were like, you know, along came an Indian and his uh, and his and his hunting mate on a couple of horses. Uh, we were like, we're uh, you know, we're going to steal a steal a bone from a dog. So this thing just got up and just attacked us, maybe forty fifty meters. By the time I got off, the, my horse was, you know, trying to throw me and I'm trying to get out of the stirrups and, you know, grab a rifle. Uh, I had just enough time to get the rifle cocked, loaded, pointed at the bear as he was about 10, 12 feet away and I fired it. And there was a, there was a, I reckon he got singed by the muzzle blast. There was such a hell of a red fiery roar out the front of this barrel it was that close mate and i didn't kill him he uh, he dropped got up and ran and i didn't have time for a second shot i was just sort of stunned really i guess so one of the scariest days of my life mate was the next day when we had to go and find him because the indian in, in british columbia at that time the guy didn't have a rifle he wasn't allowed to carry a rifle so he had a tomahawk that was the best he had and i'm thinking great you know this this bear comes barreling off a you know as we're going up the mountain I thought if he comes barreling off any of these cliffs just any of these uh, feeding slopes just above our head the feeding benches he's just going to scalp us by the time this guy uh, gets gets into action with the tomahawk or he'll bury it in my back by mistake <laughs> and as it happened it turned out to be the greatest anticlimax in my hunting career because we got up and here here's this grizzly digging for marmots on the side of a hill. It was about a 60, 70 knot wind blowing. It was a fearsome uh, gale that day. And I shot the bear and he went down and then we just waited and waited. We waited about half an hour until finally uh, one, of the local, uh, one of the local blackbirds came down, got on his head and it picked him in the eye. And then the minute he didn't move, the guide was happy. So, you know, he went down and there he was. But 
we couldn't work out what had happened. And then when we scun him, all I'd done with that initial shot, I thought I'd shot him in the uh, in the chest, right? All I'd done was drive a furrow above his nose and through his scalp and just parted the skin. Had done nothing. Stunned him, dropped him, but didn't put a bullet through him at all. And why he was also so angry, he had an eight-inch piece of wood buried in his left foot. And it was right underneath the meat. We only dug it out. We only found it when we scunned him. And the foot was fested to the size of a football. So he was one hell of an angry bear. Yeah. What calibre was that when you, up, you were taking him those days? 7mm mag, mate. Yeah. My favourite calibre. <laughs> I've got a 7mm 08. Love it to death. I love, yeah, I love well, the there you go. Well. Yeah, I oh. like 300s, but uh, you know I've always had a thing for 7mm seven, seven mags because I just don't think the recoil's there. Doesn't worry me as much as it used to when I was a skinny little kid at eleven stone seven, but you know, that uh, it's a factor. And they kill long, they kill a long way out, mate. I've shot some, I've pulled off some extraordinary shots with my seven mil, basically because I know it so well too. Yeah, but I, I got back to the other question before when we speak about your firearms. If Carl Allison had to pick a, a favourite, which one would it be? A favourite which? Your favourite firearm, just in general. Out of all the ones you've got in your safe at home and your prides and joy, which one would be your favourite firearm of, of any one of them? Well, just because I've always used it since I was a kid and I bought it when I was when I was uh, 17 or 18, uh, it'd have to be my 7mm Magnum, which used to be a 3006, which I shot for 20 years as a 3006, and before that was a 243. Uh, it's a dated custom rifle now. It was done by a German bloke named Willy Rackfeld back in the 60s. Uh, so I've had it, you know, 50 years and shot most of the heads I own have been shot with it. Yeah. Um, that and I I shot a... Uh, I've also got a custom uh, 240 Weatherby that Jeff Wilkins, the late gunsmith, gunmaker, engraver, built me as a as a mate's thing. 20 years ago it was as a 30.06, but I never liked the uh, the relationship of the barrel length to the to the, the stock. The forend was too long, I thought, so I put a big, long 240 Weatherby tube on it, 27-inch tube, and it's just perfect. And I use it a lot because it sort of does everything that the 7mm won't. Yeah, I've been thinking about that for a while. Like, I wouldn't mind getting a... You know, I've got a seven mil. Get the you know seven mil rem mag. You know, maybe for some long range type stuff. So I'm still thinking they are pretty good, mate. Know? I mean, I, I shot everything with a thirty a six from you know from rabbits to buffalo for twenty years, and I got magnemized before I went away to uh, to America. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, if you shoot a you shoot a thirty a six today, they don't kill as emphatically as a seven mil magnum, in my view, in my opinion. Uh, you know, the seven mil just rolls them. And, and and shot for shot, same placement. You know, the thirty eight six is just a bit slower. That's what I found anyway. Yeah, I mean, that, that's why I like the seven mil oh eight. It's fantastic for you know goats. I mean, geez, it just just wax goats. It's good on you know, it's uh, good on pigs. From you know, some of the friends that I got them, they shot pigs and deer, and just a beautiful, beautiful well, color. I, I wouldn't have any. Call. I wouldn't use these guns for uh, you know, basically just shooting bloody goats and pigs and stuff like that. I mean, I'd two four three will do all that. Uh, which is the 240 Weatherby for me. It's just a bit faster, you know. I like I, I, li- I like Weatherby calibers. I don't like their rifles. I think they're pretty gaudy, but uh, I like the calibers. <laughs> Do you like the 243? My friend always tells me, he goes, don't get a 243. Too small for big game, too big for small game. <laughs> well, that's true. So that's why I've got a 240 Weatherby, mate. It makes <laughs> that much difference. Uh, all right, I've got a couple more questions, mate, before we finish off. Let's say, we'll give you, for one piece of advice, let's say if you could give one piece of advice to say, 
you know, a new hunter getting into the sport, what would it be? And also, if there was, I mean, you know, experienced hunters out there that think, you know, they, you know, they, they can't really learn too much more. What would be some, uh, you know, advice you would give to, you know, one piece of advice to some experienced hunters? Young people, I'd say, to join a club. Yeah. That's the absolutely the first thing they should join a club, like Australian hunters, a hunting club. But you know, you've got to learn to shoot, and then once you learn to shoot, you've got to learn to hunt. So you join a club, and you get to know people. Gradually, if you're patient, and I said it before, patience is the number one virtue of a hunter. Uh, you must be patient, you must be willing to learn, and you've got to shut your mouth sometimes and, and listen to other people's advice. That's the first thing. And in due course, you know, you'll get to meet the people. Some of them will be like yourself, and you have a, a sort of a, an, a new generation undercurrent going in the club, if you like, and they go off, and you do your things, and you get to meet people, and you go out and... And, you know, you, you get your own experiences. There is no other way. As for the old blacks, well, God knows, mate. They all know it anyway, don't they? <laughs> oh, that's, I guess so. I guess so. Um, I guess second last question, mate. If people wanted to, I know you, you've, you've written quite a number of books and stuff, and, you know, people wanted to, you know, find out about your books, they wanted to order them, are they still in print? Give us all the info if they can, uh, if that's possible. Mate, I've written five books now, and every, none of them last long. They're all sold out pretty quickly. My last African book, I'd sold it. Uh, I did it myself. I jumped on the uh, uh, phone, and I rang around all the gun shops, and I, I flogged off a, you know, a whole bunch that I hadn't sold to America. I sold it basically to uh, to Peterson's Mob in America, and uh, you know they marketed it, and then I did the same in Europe. I found a big distributor over there. They took, the, took the, what I hadn't sold in Australia, so they sell out fast. Uh, I mean, a lot of people like what I do. Um, a lot of people don't, of course, but that's their problem. I don't, I don't. I'm not into websites, mate. I just haven't got the time, nor the interest. If I was 40, I'd probably worry about it. But you know, from where I'm sitting, who cares? Yeah. Have you ever? Do you think you've ever come up under some of the stuff that you've done and being in, you know, obviously in, you know, uh, you know, media and I'm more talking, more talking about the hunting and shooting. Have you ever come under criticism from, you know, hunters and other shooters for any reason? Mostly people who know me, you know, appreciate that I'm not a bad bloke, you know, despite what some people might say. I mean, when I was young, you'd hear a million rumours about what you did. None of it is ever true. Uh, so I, I've had a pretty good run. I can't, I can't really say that there's, you know, that I've really had a bad trot at it. Yeah, uh, good point. You forgot the warthog, but we can go back to that. No, no, we're getting that. We're getting that. This is, <laughs> that's, that's 22. <laughs> oh, right. Huh? I might leave this part in. That's a good part about it. But, uh, yeah, yeah, do what you like, mate. To, to finish off, I mean, you were telling me uh, when we discussed on the phone that about one of your one of your recent trips. I mean, can you share, you know, I guess I guess where you went, uh, what you were there for, and what the outcome of that trip was? Mate, my, my, I've had two dreams in the hunting world since I was a kid. Well, I mean a real kid, you know. When I was very, very young, I, I read Hemingway and so on. I always wanted to hunt a lion. And the other animal that really got me was I read some Marco Polo about Marco Polo's adventures in, in Central Asia when I was a kid too. And he discovered these great big running sheep, the Yargali Marco Polo rams. So the two trophies I've always wanted, and are probably two of the most expensive animals in the world, are lion and Marco Polo ram. Well, the last trip to Africa this year, a couple of months back, a month ago, I shot a line, right? It was organised by a mate of mine, Ray Hammond, known as Gyra for obvious reasons. That's where he lives. And there were four of us on this trip, and between us we got five mighty lines, mate. And we would, you know, this is not a cakewalk. We're on the Botswana border, and we're picking up 
tracks from water holes in the morning and then following them. Some lines got run, run, you know, run ragged for five hours, and the, every line we encountered was waiting for us, ready to attack. And that's what happened with mine. I struck him at 40 metres. He uh, he was under a tree, looking at me, ears back, uh, snarling, tail flicking, twitching, ready to attack. So I thought, bugger this! I don't want any running around and yodeling and you know. And people being chased around the bush, so I brain shot him. And apparently they don't, you're not supposed to do that. But anyway, I did. He didn't go anywhere, and I was very happy. A bit anticlimactic. Ray Hammond had one up a tree. He chased his for five hours, and he had this bloody lion up a tree, lying on, the, on, the, on a limb, 11 foot off the ground, trying to do the same thing. He was about to jump on everyone. And I hate to think what would have happened. Uh, it would have been pandemonium. But anyway, Ray did the same thing. He shot it. Another black shot, one at 15 metres in the bush, looking at him. And he couldn't find anywhere to shoot, and he found a little gap in the bush about the size of a playing card, and he brained it too. So the Aussies had a good reputation there as brain shooters. The last <laughs> bloke, a wheat farmer from West Australia, a lovely bloke named Brian Ayres, he had one charging from 80 metres. He shot it, and it was a good shot, but it wasn't good enough to kill the lion. So in about five seconds, this thing's doing, you know, they get from about naught to 60 in about eight seconds or less, and they come in very low. There were three blokes started to shoot at it. Everyone missed. And in the end, one shot got it in the chest and ended up about 10 feet from the end of his barrel. So that was pretty scary. So we've had all that, and you'd think, wow, you know, it's a great, great trip, which it was. The last day, uh, we're all packed. All the guns are packed away. We're ready to take off into Joburg, Johannesburg, to get our lines for the taxidermist, right? And there's a warthog being in the camp. He was in there when I first got in there, a sow, a big full-grown sow. And she'd got out three or four days, unbeknown to me. I didn't take any notice. I saw this sow out in the, out in the bush just as we were sort of getting ready to jump in the, in the van to go to town. And I thought, oh, 400mm lens locked away. I'll just, go, I'll just step out here and walk across there and get a shot of her, which I did. Then she just turned around, mate, and charged me from about 40 metres. She'd just come full on at me. I tried to jump up a tree, but it was a, was a camel thorn bush with, with about three-inch nails sticking out everywhere. So after I'd nearly taken my eye out twice, I, was, I, just got on, I just fell off the ground and I got hammered by this thing. She gave me a hernia as it happened in the initial hit. Hit me right in the groin, knocked me flat on the bum, and then uh, rushed in and just hooked, put a, put a, the, uh, a, main, a main tusk straight through my upper thigh. I just missed my balls by about an inch. Uh, missed my femoral artery by about half that. Missed everything, but right through the thigh and just tossed me in the air. My mates reckon I was like a rag doll. I just flew four and a half feet through the air, landed on my back, and she was into me again. And I thought, if I stand up, I'm dead. Uh, I, I, this thing's going to kill me. She is not going to let up, and she just kept coming back and back. So I just lay on the ground, and I put my feet in the face. I had boots on, luckily, and I jammed them in the face. She didn't like that, but then she'd try and come around to the left, and I'd swing with them and jam them in the face again. One stage, she just hit me and drove me back six feet, you know, a couple of metres, back into a tree and whacked me on the shoulder, and the shoulder's still giving me buggery, and just kept it up. And she hit me in the groin, and she, you know, she sheared me across the across the thigh, across the shin bone to the bone, and punched another hole through the. I ended up with seven, with seven, you know, pretty deep tusk wounds, and a broken rib, and uh, you know. And really being knocked about, when suddenly out of nowhere I'm screaming, "Get this 
effing thing off me before it kills me. Everyone's yeah. panicking, you know. They're trying to find <laughs> guns and they're all locked away in safes or in the bus or in a, somewhere else. Just at that moment when I thought, I'm dead. I've really, you know, I've, I've had a lot of life-death experiences, but this time I thought, oh, you know, this is just not going to stop and this thing's going to kill me. She's going to get a tusk into, into, into it's going to gut me or do something. Very quickly and very soon, if I uh, if nothing happened, and just then a little dog I'd befriended in camp, a little yellow-eyed, a little yellow-eyed uh, Jack Russell named Rosie, came rushing out of the, out of the of the cooking shed where there's four tourists without rifles and two black cooks, screaming their lungs out as you can imagine. The dog into the pig, you know, started nipping at it and barking, and the pig got the craps with that, turned around, left me, thank God for that, and rushed off after the dog. Hooked another dog on the way through and was just about to get into the kitchen and, you know, God knows what it would have done once it got in there with all the tourists. The bloke, the hunter's wife, the outfitter's wife, threw him a, a 22 250 through the window and he nailed it behind the ear. And that was the end of that. But how how lucky can you get? Wow. Oh, wow. Man, you are one lucky fellow, mate. That's someone's looking over your shoulder. That's Or sure. unlucky, mate. You know, I was too uh. stupid for, for words to walk out in front of a warthog but then again I've walked out in front of millions of warthogs but always at a rifle too yeah that's right are they normally, uh, are they normally aggressive or nah not normally they can do I mean you know there's been look it up on the internet mate there's any amount of guys being up by warthogs very seriously even last year there were three tourists nearly killed in on the Kenyan border by a warthog but and they've killed plenty of lions and leopards and all sorts of things I mean when they're cornered they're pretty aggressive if they've got young, they can be aggressive. But, uh, you know, I don't know what it was with this thing. Maybe it had been abused in the pen. I don't know. But it didn't like people. Certainly not me. Maybe it was my tattoos or my two different coloured eyes. I don't know. All right, Cole. Thanks for coming on the show, mate. I really, really appreciate your time. You certainly are. Uh, probably the first time on my uh, podcast that I've had some, uh, you know, such an interesting, you know, person that's come onto the show to share their, you know, biography and what they've done. And certainly the stories, you know, you, you've shared with the listeners today are just... Mate, oh, oh, I don't know what to say, you know what I mean? But uh, certainly it's a pleasure to interview someone. Now that I know all the stuff you've done of someone of your experience, it's a pleasure to come on and share some of these uh, stories, uh, the things that you've done over the years, and uh, hopefully uh, many more you know, fun and you know, hunting and shooting opportunities because you're certainly blessed, that's for sure. So thanks for coming on the show, mate. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, mate. And I have to get to write a book with some of those anecdotes in it. You've just been educated, and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.